Hello and welcome to episode 51 of my podcast, I Stand Strong. I, as always, am Teddy, coming at you from my bear cave in the concrete jungles of beautiful Midwest. Um, well, beautiful's relative, it's rather blustery at the moment, but, um, yeah, uh, want to start today by saying, you know, reiterating a thank you for, uh, Michelle and Tony coming on last week and having fun with me just talking about random shit and especially to Michelle for, you know, coming up with topics. Um, you know, that was, that was fun for me and it, it meant a lot that, you know, they joined me for, you know, 50th episode when I started doing this, I didn't know how long I was going to go with this. You know, like I had a goal in mind, but I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to keep up going for 50 or more episodes. So yeah, so that was a, that was a big thing to me. Um, but on to this week, um, or this episode, uh, today I, I, after having a couple conversations randomly throughout, you know, the last couple weeks, I've actually had an idea for, um, originally I was going to do this a little differently. Um, I was going to do underrated movies by directors I really like, but it kind of like it kind of just evolved into just some of my mo- some of the movies that I really like that I think aren't appreciated as much as they deserve. I mean, they may some of these may not be truly underrated, but they still don't have to me as much uh, much you know like they, they they don't get enough praise in my eyes. So. Uh, so yeah, uh, let's I guess let's let's dig into some uh, some more movie talk. Um, so the first one I'm starting with is my favorite, probably my favorite movie by Martin Scorsese, and this one could be controversial to some people. I don't know, um, but yeah, uh, Shutter Island. You know, uh, like I don't get me wrong, I love Scorsese's. Like I I'm a sucker for Goodfellas, Casino. Uh, Raging Bull, those those movies, but I'm sorry, his his best movie to me is Shutter Island, probably because it it's not, it doesn't feel the same as most of his movies. Um, you know, what I mean, it's like he, you know, it's Martin Scorsese technically doing like a horror thriller, and it's oh man, it's just so good. Um, so yeah, like you know, quick rundown, it's. Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark Ruffalo at the beginning of the movie are on their way to this island that has a hospital for the criminally insane kind of thing, like kind of like an Arkham Asylum kind of thing, um, where a patient has gone missing. And they're, they're FBI agents or they... I can't remember what... What, uh, what you know group they're with but they're they're sent there I'm, I'm pretty sure it's fbi but they're sent there to try to find out what happened to this this prison or inmate or you know patient what happened to them because they just disappeared from their their uh room one night or whatever i mean this is but they, they make this very clear it's a very high you know there there are aspects of this hospital that are very um high security um also kind of barbaric at points but anyways they, yeah they so they come to this island to uh try to unsolve you know to solve the mystery but 
from moment one, something just doesn't seem right. Like, you know, you, you can tell something's off, but I mean, and you have some amazing performances, both, you know, both DiCaprio and Ruffalo put on, put on some amazing performances as the main two, but, uh, Ben Kingsley as, uh, like the head of the hospital, um, or the, yeah, the, we'll just call it a hospital. Why not? Um, just like he's constantly coming off as, you know, like there's something he's not telling you kind of thing. And it just makes for a great suspense. Um, I am currently forgetting who plays the, um, like the main guard, but I remember he is just like, you know, he seems like a despicable person. Um, Right out, of, it seems like he's right out of like the the guards out of Shawshank Redemption. Um, God, I want to say it's gonna drive me nuts till I can think of who played the head guard in that freaking movie. Um, ah, Ted Levine, that's right. Um, but you also have, like, uh, yeah, Ted Levine j- plays the head of the guards, and he just comes off as this completely despicable person, you know. Possibly abusing the uh, the patients, that kind of stuff, and it's yeah. Um, but you also got some like really great like small performance, like uh, Elias Codius, Catias, or however you pronounce his name. He plays like a maybe five minute moment in the movie, but he steals the scene when he's there. Um, a little more into the backstory of it is uh, DiCaprio. Something happened to his wife, like his his wife and kids died, and it's you know it was this big event for him. And so, like throughout the movie, he keeps seeing like flashbacks, um, or like having dreams where he's seeing his wife, and his wife is played by uh, Michelle Williams from like Dawson's Creek and whatnot. And yeah, just everything about this movie just works. Um, all the way down to the ending, which I will not, you know, I don't care if it is a you know movie that's been out for quite a bit of time. I'm not going to spoil the end of the movie. It's it is so worth watching. Even even once you've seen the end, it's go it's always worth it to go back and rewatch it. Um, as well as you know, probably the only Scorsese movie I can think of that at the end of the movie you're you're wondering about an aspect at the end of the movie because it it definitely leaves something out there for your interpretation but it's it's intriguing um yeah i i didn't write down unfortunately when this movie like when this movie came out i want to say it was like 2017 or something like that i know it wasn't overly long ago but it's not fairly new either uh yeah i mean Maybe maybe it's my horror movies, you know, horror fan sensibilities talking, but God, I love this movie, and yeah, in 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 my eyes, it's probably one of Scorsese's better movies. I don't think it's like a perfect movie because, like, yeah, Goodfellas is an amazing movie, but I think like of his his films, it's the one that speaks to me the most. I won't say it's a better movie, like filming wise or anything like that, than some of his other ones. But it is one that I could watch more often. Um, so yeah, Shutter Island, highly recommend it. And I also don't feel like it. I feel like it does get 
acknowledged, but it doesn't get the credit it deserves for being this this movie that almost doesn't fit in with the rest of Scorsese's filmography. Um, so yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, next we're going to go to another director I really like. Um, and I kind I kind of feel like this that the you know is is his first movie I think is the I think it was his first movie I'm pretty sure it was his first movie um, that that he did and I still think is probably like doesn't get the credit it deserves for what it did and that's I'm gonna go with Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs um, amazing cast you know Tim Roth Michael Madsen Harvey Keitel. Uh, Chris Penn. Oh God. Uh, I can picture the, <laughs> I can picture him, but I can't think of his name off the top of my head. Anyways. Uh, yeah, just an amazing cast. Um, like the, the opening sequence at the diner is like a great setup sequence. Cause it, it uses, it, it's really, um, effective or not effective. Uh, Effective. It's effective at building, like telling you who all these characters are in like a five minute sequence of them just BSing over breakfast. Um, Steve Buscemi, that was the other actor I, I was forgetting his name. Um, of course, Quentin Tarantino has his uh, has his cameo in there. Is uh, Mister? Is he Mister Brown? Yeah, I believe he's Mister Brown. Um, but yeah, like you, you don't really get too many of them's actual names because it's like they all have nicknames. Like uh, Michael Madsen is Mister Blonde, who is probably my favorite character in the movie, even though he's a complete psychopath. Um, but yeah, like Mister Orange, Timothy Roth, and you, you get the point. Like they all have like names that are based around colors. Um, and the whole thing is, you know, they were they're this group of people that were put together by this. Yeah, they really don't make it very clear what Joe is, but you know he's he's some kind of crime boss of some kind, and he puts together this group of guys to rob a uh, like a, a jewelry store um, that's about to get this shipment. I think it's of diamonds. Um, so like, yeah, he puts together this crew to rob this thing, and something goes wrong because the majority of the movie takes place like after the after this heist and. You're just seeing the fallout. Like two of them are dead before they even got out of the, you know, before they even got away from the jewelry store kind of thing. And it's the, so then it becomes kind of the, well, what happened was one of them, you know, not who they say they are. And I think it does a really good job at keeping it interesting and building some interesting characters. Um, you know, uh, I have a I have a poster of Michael Madsen as well as a, an action figure of Mister Blonde from this movie, and I just God, I love the movie. Um, you know, like most of Tarantino's movies, it has an amazing soundtrack uh, using a lot of seventies seventies uh, music. Um, you know, the most iconic scene in the movie to me is probably. Mr. Blonde, uh, Michael Madsen's character dancing to uh, Stuck in the Middle with You by uh, Steeler's Wheel as he's torturing this cop that he he basically kidnapped when things went sideways. 
and the cop showed up. Like he knocked this guy out, put him in the trunk and took him back to their hideout so he could torture him. And he's dancing around with this straight razor to stuck in the middle with you, which is this like really like upbeat song. But yeah, so he's dancing around just every now and then putting a cut on the guy's face or eventually he cuts the cop's ear off. Um, it's, it's brutal, but at the same time it is masterfully done. Um, I think the, the subversion of using the happy song to this, this sequence is what really sells it to me. Um, yeah, it's, you know, like I said, I'm pretty sure this was Quentin Tarantino's first like movie that he directed and everything. I think he did work on like California or or True Romance or one of those movies um, where he did a lot of writing, but I don't think he directed those ones or whichever one it was. I can't remember if it was California or True Romance, but um, yeah, I know he worked on an, an upper movie prior, but this was like his first, like legitimately his project. And man, it is. I, st- I still think it's better. Like I, I don't take anything away from a majority of his movies. Um, I do think that Pulp Fiction is like the least interesting of his movies for the most part, for some reason. Like there's just something about it that it's a good movie, the great cast, it's got some great moments, but it just doesn't do as much for me. Like I'm also though a really big fan of like his, you know, the later stuff he's been doing where he's, you know, where he went into his phase of doing the, like the grindhouse esque movies. And then now he's doing his like, you know, like I I didn't really put it together until somebody else. I was listening to another podcast and they made a comment about, you know, his, his later movies are kind of revisionist history, you know, like Django is him taking on slavery. Um, uh, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is rewriting the Sharon Tate Manson family murder. You know, I mean, it's, I, I didn't, Inglorious Bastards is him, like, you know, kill, you know, him getting to kit show, you know, uh, you know, the, the American troops killing, uh, uh, Hitler and, you know, kill, basically destroying the Nazi party, which, so like I said, it, it's, it's fun to watch those movies, but you know, like, I I got to go to the original. Like for some reason, Reservoir Dogs, my favorite one. Um. Okay. Let's see. Where do we go now? Here. Ah, another one of my favorite directors. Uh, the the horror legend that is John Carpenter. Um, for a long time, the only things I had really seen that he did were was uh, you know, Halloween, The Thing, uh. Big Trouble in Little China. There were a couple that else that I saw that I didn't know were his when I'd first seen them. But the one there's one that I recently discovered thanks to just enough people talking about it that I'm like, you know, like enough like people saying, hey, like this is this is underrated. People more people need to see this. And that's uh Prince of Darkness from I want to say it's like late 80s, early 90s. And it's technically part of an unofficial trilogy that John Carpenter did called the Apocalypse Trilogy, which includes uh, what it's the Thing, Prince of Darkness, and um, In the Mouth of Madness, which is another great one he did. That's kind of I feel is kind of like doesn't get the credit it deserves. But Prince of Darkness, it is it's definitely weird, and you have to get through a lot of weirdness to really get to the heart of it, but. You know, 
on the basis it's base it's the story of uh donald pleasance is this uh not a preacher he's a priest who his like close friend who is also a priest died and left him the key to the the basement of this like dilapidated church um and when he goes there he finds like all that's there is this giant vial of some liquid um and when i say giant i mean literally like it, it's like a human person could fit into this vial but it's got this like swirling green and black liquid in it um and he quickly puts together what he's pretty sure it is and so he goes to uh this uh science professor i can't remember what he what the professor like specializes in for some reason but he's played by victor wong and he asks him to study this vial based you know with using you know all of science to prove what he's pretty sure is in this you know this vial which he's pretty sure it's basically like the antichrist is in this this vial so it's like it is basically like liquefied devil so to speak um which if that sounds strange it is and it gets stranger as it goes because you know like it then becomes this whole thing where victor wong brings all of his um god i'm, I'm probably wrong it's probably not victor wong but anyways he brings all of his students there like because they study like different branches of science to study this one thing so that they can prove that basically what is inside this is like basically pure evil um but once essentially once they go into this church it becomes clear that they're probably not coming out very easily because like the um suddenly there's just like an army of homeless people surrounded by led uh around this church led by um Alice Cooper. Um, and yeah, then it just, so then it kind of just starts going to like, you know, they're starting to study this thing and there's people like trying to translate, uh, translate things that are coming off it to which they start, they, when they finally do start translating some of it, it kind of, you know, crosses into almost like being like maybe a dark version of the Bible or, you know, prophecies of some kind about this, this liquid, and then it goes even further when one of them becomes possessed by the liquid and it just, it, it is batshit insane, but man, is it a good movie? Um, I, I, I could not believe I'd never seen this movie after so long. I mean, it, it goes really out there cause you've got like interdimensional Jesus. Cause like anybody who comes near this canister instantly starts having the same dream. And it's like they're in front of the church and you can see inside the door, but it's just like the shadow of somebody standing there. And it's very, very heavily insinuated that like Jesus was an extra dimensional being maybe. And like he's transporting, like kind of like sending this signal so to speak to anybody that's close to that like warning them of what this thing is and yeah it like i said 
batshit insane, but worth every second of a watch. Um, the acting's great, you know, because of John Carpenter, you have a, a really good, like, soundtrack that John Carpenter did himself. Um, yeah, worth watching. And, like, I, I can't remember all the cast members, because I know there's other big names in there, like, throughout it. A um, couple people that, you know, once again, you know, Donald Pleasance, you know, he... he Carpenter worked with him on a Halloween. Um, if it's Victor Wong, I can, I, I'm sorry if I'm saying the wrong name. You know, I can Google that real quick. But anyways, um, yeah, you have a couple people from, you know, that he worked with on Big Trouble in Little China. Um, yeah, I'm as you can tell, I'm, I'm trying to talk and text at the same time. So I can find out and give the proper names to the actors. Uh, almost there. Okay, I was right. It's Victor. It is Victor Wong. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, but you also have like uh, Dennis Dunn, who played. Uh, he played kind of the the true hero of Big Trouble in Little China because if you really watch that movie, Kurt Russell's character, he's. Jack Burton is not the hero of that story. He thinks he's the hero, but his his buddy is the real hero of that movie. Um, of course, Victor Wong was also in Big Trouble in Little China as Egg Chin. Um, yeah, I think yeah, that might be... Yeah, that is kind of like the, the peak of the actors. Um, but even the actors that were unheard of in that movie put in some really good performances, so I'm kind of shocked I haven't seen them in anything else. So yeah, well, I guess I guess that'll wrap up Prince of Darkness. Now that I've vamped on, or I freaking stumbled my way through remembering actors' names. Um, okay, yeah. So then this next one is it's it's one of those movies that like I will by no means tell people they're wrong for for thinking it's just overly cheesy because it, it on many levels it really is like a fifties monster movie done in the 90s but god it's glorious for it um and that is uh deep rising by stephen summers um which i learned some more news about this one later but uh and i'll get to that but uh yeah stephen summers famous for doing the uh the mummy movies with brendan Fraser. um those are the ones that pop into mind the most for me uh, yeah, this one is, uh, it stars Treat Williams, Wes Studi, um, Dijamon Hansu, I think is how you pronounce the guy's name. He's in there. Uh, Famke Jansen at her hottest. Um, as well as some other actors that are like those, those actors that are like, yeah, I know that guy. He was in that other movie, but you don't know his name um, or their names. Yeah, th there's a couple of those people in this movie as well. Um, but yeah, this is, this is a shocky, like I said, B movie monster flick. Um, it's about a, a cruise ship that is, uh, gets sabotaged and is dead in the water. And then something hits that, like something attacks the boat. And then we flash over to Treat Williams, who is, you know, they, they really don't make it too clear what his job exactly is. All you know is he 
he's kind of a transporter, but he has a, a, a high-powered boat, and he has two people that you know help him run it. And he has been hired to escort this group of men led by Wes Studi. Um, and they really, you know, like, you know, they're mercenaries and they make no bones about the fact that these guys are probably mercenaries. Um, anyways, he, oh yeah, he's been hired to take them to something out in the middle of the ocean. Uh, he doesn't know what, because as, uh, Treat Williams character rather, you know, uh, uh, rather regularly points out his, the the slogan of his business is if the money is there we do not care. Um, so he does not ask questions about what where they're going, what their mission is. He's just taking these guys there, and when they get you know like pretty far out there, suddenly they hit. A speedboat that was out in the the middle of the ocean. I think they're so far out there that there's no reason a speedboat should have been out there. But knowing that you know this cruise ship has been attacked, it's pretty obvious that the you know the the speedboat came from them, uh, came off the this like because I mean this cruise liner is like massive and it's definitely for rich people. Um, but anyway, so they get to. You know, they eventually find this cruise ship, and like I said, it's dead in the water. No communications in or out. It's not running, and they, you know, so at that point in time, it's you know, West Duty and his men like kind of commandeer the the boat that Treat Williams is driving, and they attach a missile launcher to the or a tea torpedo launcher to the front of it, and um. <clears throat> And yeah, so they get to, they, you know, they get out to this cruise liner and because their boat is so banged up from hitting the speedboat, they decide, okay, well, he, you know, West Duty and his men are going in to do something on this boat. So like, they'll just ask to use the machine shop to repair the parts so they can repair the, you know, his boat and get the hell out of there, so to speak. But Everything is not as it appears because, you know, they get to the boat and when they go into the main, you know, the main hall of this, this big old cruise liner, like there's nobody there. It's like, a, it's a practically a ghost ship. Um, and for very good reason, you know, you find out that there is some kind of giant, it comes across as like an, an octo, like octopi or like, so, you know, something like an octopus or whatever. It has giant tentacles um, that actually are kind of almost like creatures of their own because like the t end of the tentacles will open up and there's like teeth in there and, you know, kind of thing. And it's, they're, they're creepy. I mean, yeah, some of the CGI doesn't hold up real well, but it's still awesome. Um, Meanwhile, you also have Famke Jansen, who was on the boat when, like, before it was attacked, and she's a thief of some kind. And you first get introduced to her, she's, like, stealing a key card off of the captain so she can access the vault. Uh, so she may steal stuff off the, you know, steal stuff off the, the, the boat or out of the vault. Um, but she gets caught and locked in, like, like a, a 
pantry of some kind. Um, pretty much a cooler. Um, so she doesn't get out of there to like after like long after the attack happens. She gets knocked out when the boat gets attacked, and then she comes to and gets loose and gets back to the uh, the vault just in time for West Studi and his men to show up at the vault. And so they take the key card and open up and they find some uh, some people in there, like the owner of the ship and the captain are in there. And that's when you're told that, you know, like something, you know, some creature is on this ship with them. And, oh, it just, it devolves into such a, such a schlocky movie. But man, it's so much fun. Um, and like I said, Famke Jansen, so hot in this movie. So hot. And she put like, but that, you know, that aside, she also puts on a great, she puts on a good performance as this, you know, this thief that's not horribly great at her, her job, but she, she does a decent job at it, so to speak. You know, she, she's not perfect. You know, they, they make a reference when they catch her at the beginning, you know, like all of her, you know, her, her rap sheet and whatnot. And she's been caught a lot more than she's probably gotten away with. And, you know. From the way they make it sound, at least. But, uh, but yeah, th- this is this is one of those movies that, like, it came about at the same time as, like, The Relic and stuff like that. Some of those great, just kind of like, what they what I feel are, like, throwback monster movies. Um, yeah, great movie. You know, Treat Williams is awesome. Uh, I can't remember the actor that plays his, like, kind of like his sidekick. But he's he's one of those actors that's been like you know he he later was with Stephen Summers in uh, worked with Stephen Summers for the Mummy movie the first Mummy movie with Brendan Fraser because he played Benny um, and he usually plays that part a lot but uh, but yeah it's fun movie um, you know you get some some pretty good gore in there there's some pretty good spe- uh, practical effects like especially when they find like essentially like the den of like where all the bodies have gone to and there's just like skeletons and mush left over because this creature essentially like pulled like it's the the tendrils like i said the the tentacles will open up and like they can eat people well essentially it like drinks the fluids out of the body so like it crushes them as it's you know bringing it closer and feeds the the creature itself off the fluids. So what they find is pretty much a gooey messes and it's, but there's some great special uh, practical effects in that part. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think I said all I can say about this movie. I mean, it is, Oh, other than the fact that, yeah, that that's where I was going with that was, the uh, originally this movie was supposed to be a backdoor prequel to, uh, Steven Summers had got was working on it never came to be but he was working on a King Kong movie and this was going to be a backdoor prequel to his King Kong movie. Um he was going to set it more in in modern times and it was going to be like the cuz the way the movie ends is like they survive like fighting this thing on the boat Famke Jansen and Treat Williams get off on a jet ski, get, you know, get away from the boat on a jet ski just before it blows. And they end up on this island 
And then you find out that Joey, his sidekick, is still alive, who you thought was dead earlier. And as it ends, you hear this rumble, and it pulls back to like a long shot of the island, and you can see something like coming, like the trees are crumpling as something's walking through. And you just hear Treat Williams say, well, oh, what now? And then it ends. Well, that was supposed to be like a thing of like, they ended up on Skull Island, and that was going to be their entryway to King Kong, which I kind of think is sad that it didn't happen because I would have loved to seen a treat Williams versus King Kong kind of movie and have Famke Jansen as the, you know, the, the femme fatale of that movie. I would, I would have killed for that kind of stuff. But anyways, um, yeah. Okay. There we go. Uh, for my next one, um, I, I am going to massacre this, director's name probably because i am not perfect at always pronouncing foreign names and this sounds like it looks like a foreign name the way it's spelled uh and that is stir of echoes by david kep or cope i don't know um yeah this this movie unfortunately was dubiously released really close to the sixth sense and kind of in a similar situation like Armageddon and Deep Impact or Volcano and Dante's Peak, it kind of just got like, you know, Sixth Sense went went everywhere and Stir of Echoes just kind of, you know, like existed in the background. Where I will see, I will actually say, I think Stir of Echoes is a better movie than The Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense was a good movie and it was the, it's probably still the best M. Night Shyamalan movie. Oh, no, wait a second. I will. I take that back because Unbreakable is the best uh, Shyamalan movie. But this, there's nothing wrong with The Sixth Sense. It was a good movie. Um, but Stir of Echoes is so much better to me. Um, it follows a uh, telephone lineman. Don't remember his name. Played by Kevin Bacon. Who him, his wife... And his son all live in this like little kind of close community. And, you know, like they they, kind of get at the fact that like, you know, he's, you know, like them as a group, they're kind of struggling, you know, like he's trying to get as many hours as he can so they can pay the thing. And then uh, his wife or she might just be his girlfriend. I don't think they ever say if they're married. Um, But like she, she, comes out that she's pregnant you know with their second kid and he's kind of you know scared by this but one night they go out to uh they go to like the neighbors because there's like a block party going on so they go to the neighbors and his his significant other sister is there and she's talking about uh hypnotism and how only like 20 percent, i think it is can go be truly hypnotized um so Kevin Bacon kind of being a, a jerk in many ways is like hassling her about, oh, come on, you got to, you know, you got to try to hypnotize me because he doesn't believe in it. He thinks it's all bullshit. And after a lot of pushing, she agrees to to hypnotize him. And, you know, like the second she starts doing it, it like it flashes to like him waking up. Not the next morning, but like in the room, but like he's got, like he looks like he's been crying and everybody's kind of laughing. And you find out like she legitimately hypnotized him and like he went fully under. 
Um, and she did stuff like, you know, poked a, a safety pin through the webbing of his, of his hand and told him not to bleed. So he didn't bleed. Um, you know, they, the reason people are laughing is he was kind of talking, you know, they got him talking about like a, uh, a, a, a elementary school bully or something like that. But anyway, so, you know, it, it goes like, you know, he's just really thirsty. So he goes and gets a drink and then they go home and later that night, like he's not able to sleep. And so he goes down to the couch to watch some TV. And when he sit on the couch, like he sits forward to grab the remote, he turns on the TV. And when he leans back, there's this like ghost girl on the couch next to him. And you can see that she can kind of tell he sees her. And she's trying to like, you know, communicate with him, but he can't really, you know, he's not hearing what she's saying. And thus goes into like basically the whole movie is like, you know, you, you kind of get the hints quickly that his son also has this ability to like, you know, like see dead people around them. But like something triggered this, uh, his ability to see uh, this, this dead girl. And it, it like starts to like just, take over his life like the the need to know who this girl is and why he saw her what was she trying to you know communicate to him and yeah so in many ways it's a movie about like the the slow descent into madness that he's going through um yeah but i mean he's it's it's more than just seeing ghosts because like he also starts seeing like somewhat premonitions of events that are going to come to be uh, in a way, because like there's a point where he he wakes up on the couch and he goes looking for his boots, and one of them's underneath the couch. So he grabs it and then he goes down because he, he wants to talk to one of his neighbors. And when he goes into the house, like he sees the neighbor's son and they're talking, and all of a sudden the the neighbor's son pulls out a gun and like shoots himself in the stomach and like starts smearing the blood all over his face. And all of a sudden Kevin Bacon wakes up. He's on the couch again. And everything starts playing out that way. So he's like, oh shit, did I just see something that's about to happen? So he goes running down the street and he gets to the door just in time to hear the gunshot go off. Um, so, I mean, it's all this while you've also got, like I said, his his son is obviously open to seeing this stuff and has been talking to someone. I, you know, And he says the name of the girl at one point in time and it, uh, like the babysitter like freaks out because it's like her sister's name was that or whatever. And her sister went missing. So you start like getting little pieces of the puzzle. Um, but yeah, this, this movie is like the suspense is good. The mystery to it is good. Um, you know, watching Kevin Bacon go from this, like, yeah, he's a little bit of a dick. Um, but you know, this, this, guy who's somewhat got his life together but he's still trying to make it a little bit better to just the slow descent into madness of he knows this girl is buried somewhere in his property and he's trying to help find it so he can you know find out what happened um like and the other thing is like there's a lot of really creepy stuff in like really subtle ways so like there's a point where um you know he his uh his significant other comes home and she's got all these groceries and she goes to put the groceries in the, the, um, uh, fridge. And when she opens it up, it's like just packed with like tall cartons of like Tropicana orange juice. Because like the first thing he did when he 
got out of um, like got out of the hypnotism was like he was thirsty and he got a drink of orange juice. Well, suddenly he becomes fixated with that as well. So he just like and they never really explained why it was orange juice, but yeah, he's just chugging orange juice. Um, and then it just it just keeps going from there. But I mean, for some reason, that scene with the orange juice is just like it's creepy. And I couldn't put my finger on why it is. Maybe it's just because it's it's so out out there to see just like, you know, someone opens a fridge and there's just nothing but cartons of orange juice in there. Um, you know, because it's a, maybe it's, you know, because it, you, you can kind of relate it to the madness that he's going through kind of thing. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's such a good movie. And it, unfortunately, like I said, it got overshadowed because it came out way too close to, uh, the Sixth Sense, and since The Sixth Sense went big, I think a lot of people just kind of pegged it as, oh, well, it's just a ripoff of The Sixth Sense, when it's so much better. Um, I read the book at one point, and the book is, is just as good. I can't remember who wrote the book, but... But yeah, so Kevin Bacon, man, putting in his work is, uh, you know, in, that, in this one. Okay. Ooh... Okay, now this one, I, I I really like this movie, but I'm also not a, like, and, and this this comes from somewhere of, like, I'm not a huge fan of Danny Boyle. Like, I think, um, I think 28 Days Later is a good movie, but, like, never been into, like, train spotting. Um, those kinds of movies just didn't speak to me. But his underrated movie to me is Sunshine. Um, it is really good um huge cast to it uh you've got uh killian murphy of course because like danny boyle loved to work with killian murphy at that era um god i just had uh michelle yao chris evans um god i can't think of all the i can't i can't even think of all the actors off the top of my head but it's got quite the cast to it and the premise is a little out there because um, the whole idea of this is you're following the second mission to go out. Uh, it's the Icarus 2 and they're on their way to the sun because the sun is dying and they need to drop a nuclear payload into it to, you know, like basically like jumpstart the sun before basically Earth is destroyed by the lack of a sun, so to speak. Um, so like I said... Not really 100% believable, but it's mainly just the story of them traveling out to the sun so they can drop this nuclear payload into it, jumpstart it, and save the, you know, save Earth. Even though, like, the, the chances of them coming back to Earth, like, almost non-existent from the way they make it sound. Like, the, the trip out is, it's, it's a one way, possibly a one-way trip. I think they do every now and then talk about like the possibilities of making it back. Maybe I, I don't remember that part too much, but, and of course, like these, you know, because of the way these, these movies play, of course, things start going sideways. Um, and it all kind of kicks off when they, they hit, they find an emergency beacon and they prove it belongs to the first mission that went out. The Icarus one went out like years before and nobody knows what happened. Like they just lost because after a certain point of distance, they lose communication. But then nothing, nothing ever happened. 
and they get a signal, so they decide to direct. Like they leave it up to Killian Murphy's character because he is, um, he's basically the expert, the only person on ship that knows how to uh, work the the nuclear device. Um, so they need him, so they leave it to him basically to make that decision. Why that makes sense to them, I don't know, because it doesn't make sense. Like, yeah, he knows how to drop it, but I think it's mainly because. If they can get to the Icarus One, they'd have a possibility of a second nuke to try this with. So if they missed with the, like, so say the first one didn't work, they'd have a second nuclear payload that they could then try again to try to jumpstart the sun with. Um, and so he, although he doesn't want to, he makes the decision like, hey, you know, two nukes is better than one. Let's try it. It won't be that big of a difference. But then one, list, one miscalculation just starts a string of events because um, Benedict Wong plays, uh, like, he's, like he does all the, you know, the calculations for where they have to, how they have to veer to make their pattern most efficient so that they won't kill too much fuel, as well as they have a shield that flies, like basically goes out in front of the ship to protect them from the rays of the sun. Um, well, he miscalculates something and the shield isn't in the proper place. So it's like it basically the, the heat of the sun like burns a part of the, you know, the ship and it like just so it ends up like destroying the, um, like they have a greenhouse on sh on the ship and it destroys that as well as other things. And that just starts a series of events that just quickly goes downhill. But it also makes it so that now they have to stop at the Icarus 1 because they need the chance of the uh like the air supply there because like with their greenhouse gone there's no you know there's nothing making possibly new air at this point in time um and yeah so it just it becomes this you know like essentially like you know fighting for survival and every chance they've got but it also tackles some really interesting points of view because like there's a point where they realize that without their greenhouse they don't have enough air for the amount of people they have. So there's the possibility of having to off at least one person, so to speak, you know, sacrificing one person. So the rest can complete the mission, so to speak. And it is, it does raise some, some, like it made me think like, would I be able to choose somebody to die in that situation? I don't think I'd be able to, but I don't, I couldn't say for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the biggest thing that people, biggest issue I find that people have with this movie is the last half hour or so, it does kind of take a tonal change. It goes from this like hard sci-fi to kind of a monster movie in a way, because like once they dock with the, you know, the Icarus one things start going sideways because they find out there's another person on board now because there was apparently someone still alive on the first Icarus and they stowed away. And from there it goes into like monster territory because like you find out, and I think I want to say while they're on the Icarus one, they also find out exactly what happened to 
the old, you know, the crew of the Icarus one. Um, won't spoil it because I want people to watch this movie and, and experience it. Yeah, it it is really good, but it also has some like really unset like there's some really unsettling stuff in this movie. Um, especially around like the the captain of the Icarus two. Like at the beginning of the movie, he's like obsessed with staring at the sun and seeing how low he can get the filters and not like basically destroy his vision, but he could still like get as much of the like the full force of the sun as possible. And it's kind of a haunting thing as that's going on. So uh Yeah, um dude, Danny Boyle knocked it out of the park with this one. And like I said, I, I like Twenty Eight Days Later, but I think this is his better movie. I think this is probably the best movie I've seen that Danny Boyle has put out there. And I think not enough people talk about it. Um, I think partly the name is kind of just like sounds generic. So it probably a lot of people passed up for that. Um, okay. Yeah. Now th this is this, this last one. I'm only going with this because I recently rewatched this movie and it was so much fun. And of all the, the grim gremlin ripoffs that came out, this movie deserves to get credit for being the best of them. Um, of course, this movie does have three sequels and just every one of them is just as batshit and fun as, or I, I shouldn't say batshit insane or anything like that, but it's just as much fun as the previous one. I'm going to go with the original one and that's critters. God, I love this movie franchise. Um, you know, where else are you going to see Billy Zane getting attacked by little furballs? Um, you know, like not much of a plot here. It's, Beginning of the movie, these creatures called Krites escape from this prison planet <laughs> um, where this other race has held them. You know, like they say something about there's only like four or five of them, I think. And they've been housed in this, you know, this cell on this prison planet by another race or whatever. Well, they get loose and get a ship and, you know, take off. And so the... Like, the guy that runs this prison planet calls in these faceless bounty hunters that can, like, change their... Like, they can, like, basically change their their appearance. Um, which has some really cool special effects around it when they show it. But, um... But, yeah, it... it like, so, it... Like, and the critters land in small-town Kansas, I believe, is where it is. Like, I can't remember exactly where it is. But it's something like that. You know, it's in this, like, fictional city. I think it's in Kansas. And all the critters are, are these like little fur balls. Um, I mean, they do have like teeth and like they have faces, but for the most part, like when you see someone getting attacked by a critter, it looks like they're just like holding this like fur ball on their body and acting like it's attacking them. Um, it's not, it didn't change the, you know, change anything in the, the, the landscape of cinema, but man, it's so much fun. Um, you know, like the critters have their own language. Like they speak in this like kind of like grunty thing, but it'll bring up like subtitles of what they're saying. Um, you know, like they do, they do have a little bit of good traditional horror. Cause like the, the, the critters have like these spines they can shoot that really kind of loosey goosey on how it affects people. Cause some people, it seems like it just completely paralyzes them instantly some people it seems like it just kind of like slows them down real well um 
some people like the second they take the stinger out like they're the spine out that does you know like the the effects are gone some people they take the spine out it takes like an hour for it to clear up so yeah the the, the story of the movie is pretty much just cre- creatures come from space land in this like near this farm in like small town kansas i want to say is where it is and start wreaking havoc on this town but what's really funny is actually the most damage done to this town is actually not even done by the critters. It's done by the bounty hunters that are after the critters. Because, um, yeah, the, the bounty hunters come to Earth and they're just pretty much like any noise, they just shoot. So they're like just decimating things. And on the way there, one of them takes the face of like this famous musician because like he sees like a music video. Like on, when they're like they're scrolling through like all the knowledge of planet earth and he finds a music video and so he takes on the 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 face of this the singer of this group and then the other one just keeps changing randomly throughout the movie like he you know he looks like a, a dead cop at one point like a cop gets murdered and they find his body and they so it like it takes his vis like look for a little while and then like they go to a church and the the second bounty hunter like starts looking like the pasture because he sees him and like transforms and yeah it's it is just it's crazy it's fun it is very much like you know it is it it makes no apologies about the fact that it it is a critters like ripoff it's just trying to be a a, a, like a critters ripoff but it's it's worth the watch um like i said it's worth it alone to watch the Billy Zane death sequence where, you know, he's up with he's up in the the hayloft with the the daughter of this the family that it kind of centers around. Um and they're, you know, nothing's really happening other than there's some kissing going on, but even he's kind of leery about it, but uh and then he gets attacked by him and it's yeah, it just looks like he's got like he's holding these like two like black fur creatures against him, but he's pretending like they're attacking him and it's just so much fun. Um, and you know, but it, but at the same time, like I, I feel like critters needs to be acknowledged because like second one to me is like, I think the second one is where it peaks out. Cause the second one is awesome. Um, with the main course, I think is it like critters to the main course. Um, the only Easter horror movie I can think of, uh, which also brings in the uh, the critter, the infamous critter ball, which was just so crazy and Looney Tunes at points, but it's fun because like you, the critters ball in two when it like it's rolling down the road and it rolls over this guy and like a- after it passes over him, there's just like a skeleton laying on the ground. So like that very Looney Tunes comedy in ways. Um, and then you get three where you have. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, a young Leonardo DiCaprio in three. And then four, it does the uh, the inevitable uh, horror movie in space trope. So it takes place in space. And at this point in time, really the only character that carries over is the drunk from the first movie who ends up becoming a bounty hunter, uh, carries over into this one. But I think like Angela Bassett, I want to say, is in the fourth one. Um, yeah. Great movie series. First one's always great, but like I said, I think this. I think the second one is probably the better of the series. But I went with the first one because you wouldn't have that second one without the first one, probably. So, well, yeah. So uh, 
there we go. That is some of my my favorite under what I feel are underrated movies or overlooked movies, maybe I should say. Um, yeah. So you know, if you have if you have any thoughts on this, uh, any movies you think that are underrated that you'd like to you know tell me about, feel free. By uh, you can reach me at standstrongcast at gmail.com. Um, so yeah, I will say thank you for thank you, dear listener, for listening to me ramble. Uh, and yeah, thanks for everybody who supports me. Um, you know this this is just something I do for you know for fun. I'm not making any money off of it. It's just something I do. So you know if, if you're you're the person listening, thank you to the people who and you know who give me encouragement on it and give me feedback. My you know my good friends Tony and Michelle will always give me feedback on their thoughts, and that's you know I appreciate all that. So uh, yeah, so with that, I will say thank you to everyone listening, and I will talk to you in two weeks. Bye bye.